Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, The Risen Life, in which we look at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and consider what Jesus' resurrection means for us who have been raised to new life in Christ. Here's Pastor Nick. Good morning once again. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome. So glad to see you all today here at Whitefields Community Church. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Well, listen, in, all the, in their group, they were all equals, and yet... He was the type of guy that other people look to naturally as a leader. He was assertive. He was bold. He was confident. And if he was honest, he would have admitted that he kind of looked down on the other guys in the group. I mean, he liked them. They spent a lot of time together. They were friends. But he didn't have a ton of respect for them. You see, in his opinion, many of them were, well, They're kind of weak. They're kind of timid. They could have all afforded, in his opinion, to be, well, a lot more like him. And so that night, when Jesus told his disciples that in the near future, they were all going to fall away, they were all going to abandon him, Peter stood up and said, no way. Not me. Maybe these guys, but not me. And Jesus said, Peter, it's written in the prophecies. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will scatter. And that just made Peter all the more adamant, and he boldly declared, look, I don't know what about those prophecies, but listen, maybe these other losers here, pointing at the other disciples, maybe these other losers would do something like that, but not me. And I wonder how the other disciples must have felt when Peter said that, right? They are probably like, bro, we're right here. Like, we can hear you. Like, maybe wait till we're not here to say that, please. Like, we're right here. And Peter's like, I don't care. It's true. Look at you guys. You probably would do something like that, but not me. I'm committed, and I'm not afraid. I am ready to lay down my life for Jesus. And Jesus told him, Peter, slow your roll, bro, because listen, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Well, Peter was determined to prove Jesus wrong. No way, man. No way. I'm going to prove you wrong. And so they continued their walk on the Mount of Olives, that hill adjacent to the city of Jerusalem. And eventually they made their way to a public park called the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus wanted to stop there and pray. So they did. But as they were there, uh, we read that a big group of people, a mob, entered the park carrying swords and clubs. They were led by Judas, one of Jesus' disciples who had betrayed him by working with the Jewish leaders to hand him over to them in the middle of the night. And so as this mob descended upon Jesus with swords and clubs in their hands, Peter must have thought to himself, this is it. This is the moment that Jesus was talking about when he's going to be attacked and everybody's going to scatter. He said, this is it. I'm going to show him. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to turn and run. So what did Peter do? He reached in his coat and he pulled out that weapon that he had been concealing this entire time. He took out that weapon and he attacked. He cut off one of the men's ears who was part of that mob. But much to Peter's surprise, rather than being proud of him, Jesus scolded him. Jesus told him, Peter, put away your weapon. I don't need you to defend me. If I needed to be defended, I would call on the Father and he would send a legion of angels to defend me. I don't need you and your little sword there. And then Jesus willingly handed himself over to this mob for them to bind him 
and for them to lead him away. Well, when that happened, it says there in Matthew's gospel that all of the disciples left him and fled. They all ran away except for one, except for Peter. Peter, it says, rather than running away with the other disciples, Peter followed the mob from a distance, and he followed this mob as they led Jesus up to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And they took Jesus to the home of the high priest in the middle of the night because they wanted to convict him of blasphemy so they could justify putting him to death. And so Peter, he tried to get as close to the action as he could. First, he followed the mob from afar off, and he snuck into the courtyard where a crowd had gathered in the courtyard of the home of the high priest. And so Peter did his best to kind of blend in with the crowd. And at this point, you got to understand, Peter must have been thinking to himself, see, I showed them. I showed them. I proved them all wrong. After all, when the mob had attacked Jesus, Peter had stood his ground. When the other disciples had run away after the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter had not run away. He had followed the mob, and he was right there, standing right outside the building where the action was happening, where Jesus was standing trial before the high priest. And he must have said to himself in his heart, he must have said, See, I proved them all wrong. I showed them. I'm no coward. All those other losers, they all did it. When things got hard, they turned and they ran, but not me. Apparently, I'm the only one around here who really loves Jesus. And as Peter was standing there in the courtyard, the gospel writers tell us that there was a fire there in the courtyard where people were warming themselves in there in the middle of the night. And maybe it was the flames of the fire illuminating Peter's face. But whatever it was that caused this to happen, one of the young servant girls who was standing there in the courtyard said, Hey, I recognize you. You're friends with that guy, Jesus, the guy who's on trial inside right now. And Peter, immediately, he denied it. He said, no, you're mistaken. You've got the wrong guy. I've never met him. I'm not associated with him. Peter was afraid. He was afraid that he, too, would be arrested just like Jesus. And so Peter, he walked away from the fire, maybe trying to get away from the light of the fire. Instead, he went and stood at the entrance to the courtyard, maybe near the gate or the opening to the courtyard. But then... A little while later, another servant girl recognized him. Maybe these servants had been with the mob that was there capturing Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and she told the others, hey, everybody, this guy was with Jesus of Nazareth. And Peter then began to swear. He said, I do not know the man. I have nothing to do with him. Now, his denial must have been pretty convincing because it seems that people left him alone, at least for a little while, until verse 73 tells us some other people came and they said, you are one of Jesus' followers. We can tell because of your accent. You're not from around here. You're a Galilean. And Peter, it says at that point, invoked a curse upon himself and he began to swear, I have nothing to do with that man. And right then, the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered what Jesus had told him, that before the rooster would crow, you will deny me three times. And it says that he went out into the dark and empty streets of Jerusalem, weeping bitterly. How many of you have ever done something where you thought, well, that's it, right? There's no, there's no coming back from that. There's no way to recover from that. I've gone too far. There's no way that I'll be able to keep my job after that. There's no way that my wife or my husband will ever forgive me. There's no way that my kids will ever respect me. There's no way that that person will ever talk to me again because I've burned the bridges. I've irreparably damaged this relationship. 
And maybe it wasn't just one big event that, that caused that relationship to break down. Maybe it was a lot of little things over time. Death by a thousand paper cuts, right? The little events that caused trust or respect to erode over time in that relationship. Years of neglect, years of unkind words, or years of mistakes. And the relationship is at the point where it seems it can never be fixed. I think that all of us have experienced that kind of situation in our lives. But in our passage today, we're going to see how a broken relationship can be restored. The title of today's message is The Restoration of Peter. And in this passage, we're going to see that sin leads to separation. But in order for restoration to take place, there must be death that leads to new life. That's our sentence for today. It'll also be our outline for how we study this passage. I want you to write it down, memorize it, take it with you, take a photo, whatever you got to do. This will be our takeaway truth, our one-sentence summary. So write that down, and that'll be our, our outline that we use to study this passage. You ready? Sin leads to separation. Peter had sinned greatly in the crucial moment when he had the opportunity to identify himself with Jesus he chose to curse Jesus and deny him before others. Peter probably remembered as he walked the streets of Jerusalem that night, weeping to himself. He probably remembered Jesus' words from years ago when Jesus had told them this, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. According to Jesus' own words, what Peter had just done was a damnable sin. Throughout the Bible, we see that sin leads to separation. We see it from the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis with Adam and Eve. Then we see it with their kids, Cain and Abel. We see it throughout all of the annals of history. And in the book of Isaiah, we are told explicitly, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. You see, it's not only true in regard to our relationship with God, but it's also true in regard to our relationships with other people. Sin leads to separation. At the root of every conflict, there is sin. There is sin, whether it's social or whether it's personal. Sin is at the root of every conflict. You know, the word sin, it's actually an archery term. It comes from archery, and it means to miss the mark. It means to fall short of perfection. Maybe you say, well, hey, wait a second. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. You're absolutely right. None of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. But just because it's common doesn't mean it doesn't have consequences. You see, when we fall short, when we miss the mark in our relationships, for example, there are always repercussions. Hurt feelings, broken trust, frustration, disappointment, and over time, those things lead to separation. And in our relationship with God, the stakes are even higher. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. That's what's at stake. What's at stake is the horror of eternity separated from God. So think about Peter here in this moment. He runs out of this courtyard, weeping into the streets because he realizes that not only has he betrayed Jesus as his friend, but he's also sinned against God by turning his back on the Savior. How do you ever come back from something like that? Jesus had flat out said, if you deny me before men, then I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And now Peter has committed this damnable sin. How do you recover from this? 
Well, that brings us to our next part of our sentence. Sin leads to separation. But in order for restoration to take place, there must be death that leads to new life. You know, Peter wasn't the only one of Jesus' disciples who betrayed him that night. Judas Iscariot, the one who had led that mob to find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was also one of Jesus' disciples, and he also betrayed Jesus and and had handed him over to the Jewish leaders who wanted to kill him. And the Bible tells us that both Peter and Judas, having denied Jesus, having betrayed him, having sinned against him, that night as they left their respective places, they felt terrible. They felt awful about what they had done. They both were filled with a sense of guilt and shame and regret over what they had done. But here's the thing. Peter and Judas, they chose to deal with their regret and their guilt and their shame in two very different ways. Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, he felt bad, and it says that he went out and he hanged himself. Maybe he thought that by doing this, he could somehow atone for his sins But Judas' actions, of course, they didn't fix anything at all. They didn't fix the rift that had been created between him and God. He couldn't undo by killing himself the actions that he had done. It didn't atone for his sins. It didn't redeem his soul. But Peter, on the other hand, rather than taking his own life, at some point, after crying in the streets, he made his way back to the other disciples. He returned to the other disciples. And I wonder if he was afraid that they wouldn't accept him or maybe they would look down on him. But Peter was willing to take those risks. After all, where else could he go? And those other disciples, apparently they did welcome Peter back in, even in spite of what he had done. Because on the third day after Jesus was crucified, Peter was there when the women returned from the tomb who had gone there at daybreak to to anoint the body of Jesus. They returned with the news that the tomb was empty, that Jesus wasn't there. And Peter then raced to the tomb to look inside, to see for himself if it was so. And indeed, he saw that the grave was empty and Jesus wasn't there. And it's interesting what happened next. We're told in the Gospel of Luke and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that on the day of Jesus' resurrection, Jesus met with Peter individually, personally, apart from all of the other disciples. Now, we don't know the details of what happened during that meeting, but you can imagine Peter must have been eager to apologize, to ask for forgiveness from Jesus for what he had done, and to ask Jesus if, after what he had done, Jesus would ever be willing to forgive him and take him back. And Jesus' answer was, yes, yes. You know, it's been said that in order for a broken relationship to be restored, somebody's got to die. Somebody has to die. Listen, in order for your broken relationship with God to be restored, only the death of Jesus could pay the price for your sins. It says in 1 John that only the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from all of our sins because he is the propitiation for our sins. Judas couldn't pay the price for his own sins. And friends, you would never be able to pay the price for your sins, the things that you have done against God. You cannot do enough ever to repair the broken relationship with God that you have created by your actions. But Jesus Christ came in order to cleanse us from our sins by taking the judgment for our sins in our place on the cross. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that Jesus was able to do that? Well, look at our sentence again. It tells us this. Sin leads to separation. But in order for restoration to take place, there must be death that leads to new life. You see, death alone is not enough. 
Anybody can die, right? That's not, that's not even hard. Many people have died, but only Jesus' death was able to pay the price for the sins of others. Why? Because Jesus was the only one who lived a truly righteous life, the only one who lived without sin. And as a result, he is the only one who is qualified to take our place and pay the price for our sins. And you know what else? His resurrection is the proof that he succeeded in doing it. It's the proof. It's the receipt that he paid the price in full. Think about it like this. If you were to wind up in jail and, and you were to call me with your one phone call from jail and say, Nick, I'm in jail. I need you to come and bail me out. You go get the money and you come and bail me out. And I say, OK, I'm on it. And then what do you do? Well, you're going to sit in jail and you don't have a phone. You don't know if I'm going to do it or not. How do you know if I did it? Well, you'll know if I did it if somebody comes and opens the doors to the prison, right? Well, in the same way, Jesus' resurrection is the receipt that he did indeed pay the price in order to set you free. The, the fact that he died and then walked out of those prison gates of death into new life, it's the proof, it's the receipt that he paid the price in full. And therefore, when this life is over, death will have no hold, no grip on you. Only the death of Jesus can bring about the, the restoration of your broken relationship with God. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul the Apostle tells us this. He says, Godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas, he felt bad for what he had done. But in his sorrow, it led to death rather than salvation. But Peter, on the other hand, he chose to repent and turn to the Lord, which led to salvation and a restored relationship with God. But you know what else? This is, this is not only true in regard to relationship with God. This is also true in regard to relationships with other people. Whereas sin causes separation and division, in order to restore a broken relationship, somebody's got to die. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Unless someone is willing to die to themselves, die to their pride, in order to humble themselves and be the first to seek restoration, to apologize, to, to seek out the other, then restoration will never happen. Somebody's got to die to themselves. Somebody's got to die to their pride. And maybe you say, sure thing. As soon as that other person who offended me is willing to come and apologize for what they did wrong, then I'll be willing to forgive them and restore the relationship. Hang on a second. You know that to be a follower of Jesus, think about what it means. It means to be a follower, an imitator of a man who came in order to die to restore a broken relationship with people, and he had done nothing wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. He wasn't dying for his sins. He wasn't the offending party. And yet he came and gave his life for us, the Bible tells us, while we were still sinners, when we were yet enemies of his, he came in order to restore this broken relationship by taking the first step. And this is what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me and follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know what that is? That is an invitation to die. An invitation to die to yourself, to willingly lay down your life, to lay down your pride. In order for broken relationships to be restored, it may require you to be willing to die to yourself and seek out reconciliation, even when you feel that you are the one who was offended, not the offender. In the situation with Peter, look at this. Is Jesus the offender or the offended? 
He's the offended. And yet Jesus comes and he seeks Peter out. He's the one who acts and steps in order to restore this broken relationship. And in John chapter 21, Jesus now is about to seek out Peter once again. He's already restored him privately in that private meeting they had on Easter Sunday. But now, in order to restore him publicly, Jesus is going to meet with him in front of the other disciples. In John chapter 21, verse 1, let me walk you through the text. It says that the disciples had gone back to the Sea of Tiberias. That's just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And Matthew's gospel tells us that after Jesus appeared to his disciples on Resurrection Sunday, he told them, go ahead of me to Galilee and I will meet you there. I'll come, I'll come after you and I'll meet you there up in Galilee. So they went back to Galilee, back home to where they were from, and they're waiting for Jesus. They don't know when he's going to arrive. And so verse 3 of chapter 21 tells us that Peter says, well, guys, we're just sitting around waiting. We might as well go fishing. And so they all say, okay, fine, let's go fishing. So they all go out in their boats, and, and all night long they fish. A couple hundred yards off of shore is what it tells us. They're fishing all night, and they don't catch anything. Verse 4 tells us that just as dawn was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and he called out to them. But at first they didn't realize that it was him. And Jesus shouted to them, and he told them, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And so they said, well, what do we have to lose? We haven't caught anything all night anyway. Let's go ahead and do it. So they cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And suddenly, this amazing, huge haul of fish comes in. And immediately, that triggered a memory in John's mind. He remembered the time back when Jesus first met them, when Jesus had done something similar on the shores of that same sea. Jesus had called out to them and said, hey, you guys fishing? Try and throw it on the other side. And they did, and they caught a huge load of fish. And that triggered the memory. Oh my gosh, John said, it's Jesus. He's the one on the shore. They couldn't see him from the distance and the fog. And so G John tells Peter, Peter, it's Jesus. And what does Peter do? With his clothes on, he just jumps right in the water, and he swims as fast as he can to meet Jesus. And of course, leaves the other guys to haul in the fish, right? That's what it tells us in verse 8. And so when the other guys finally haul in these fish, and they make their way to shore, they see that Jesus has prepared a fire, and he's cooking fish for them to eat together. And it says there in verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? What is Jesus saying here? What is the these that he's referring to? Do you love me more than what? Do you love me more than these fishing boats, than these fishing nets, than these fish? No, 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 no. Do you remember? Do you remember on the night when Jesus was betrayed, how Peter had proudly declared that he loved Jesus more than anybody else loved Jesus, that he loved Jesus more than any of those other losers, right, those other disciples? What is Jesus doing? He's calling him out. After everything that's happened, he says to him, Peter, do you still think that you're awesome and these other guys are losers? Do you still think you love me more than anybody else? You can imagine Peter's face turning bright red. He's struggling to, to choke out the words and respond. And he finally says, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, there's something going on here that you wouldn't immediately pick up on if you only read the text in English. But the original readers of this, they would have picked up on this because this, again, this Bible wasn't written in English. Of course, it was written in Koine or common Greek. And in Greek, the Greek language has several words to describe different forms of love, right? Because we love our cat, and we love pizza, and we love our wife, and we love God. 
They use the same word for all of it. But in Greek, there are different words for love that describe different kinds of love, that describe different ways of loving. And so here in English, right, we only have one word. But, but in Greek, for example, the word for the highest form of love is agape. Maybe you've heard that word before. The word agape is used to describe ultimate, perfect love. Jesus used the word agape to describe the love that God has for you. In 1 Corinthians, maybe you've heard that famous passage. It's a description of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And so on. You know, the word that's used there is agape. That chapter is a description of what agape love is. There's another word in Greek for love, and that's the word phileo, which means brotherly love, right? This is not, not quite as high as agape. Still good, but not, not, you know, perfect love. And if you've ever heard of the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, it comes from this Greek word phileo. It's a good love, but it's not as strong as agape. And so here's what's happening in this interaction between Peter and Jesus. If you would read this in Greek, you know what it says? Here's what, what it says is this. Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me with agape love? And Peter says, Jesus, you know that I love you with brotherly love. Why would he do that? Why would he say that? Why wouldn't he just say yes? Because what we're seeing here with Peter is a man who has been humbled. He's been brought low. He used to think that he did love Jesus perfectly, that he loved Jesus better than anybody else in the world. But Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Do you still think you love me with perfect love? Do you still think you love me more than anybody else? And Peter's essentially saying, Lord, I do love you, but I recognize that I have not loved you perfectly. I, I, I do love you in, a, in an imperfect way, but, but I do love you. The arrogance that we once saw in this man, Peter, has now disappeared. And Jesus tells him, okay, Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. Peter, you may not be perfect, but now you're humble. And I want to use you. I want you to feed my flock. Jesus is speaking of the spiritual nourishment that comes from the word of God. You know, this is what we do here at Whitefields. Every time we open these scriptures, we believe that these scriptures contain the words of life, that this is food and nourishment for our souls. And in order for us to be healthy and strong people, we need a steady diet of God's word. But notice, Jesus called Peter to feed his people. That's interesting. He didn't just say, get everybody a copy of the scripture so they can just read it for themselves at home. No, he established a role in the church of exposition and explanation of the scriptures by called and qualified individuals. Well, in verse 16, Peter asked, Jesus asked Peter again, Peter, do you love me with agape love? And once again, Peter replies, Lord, I love you like a brother. My love for you, it isn't perfect. It's not all that it should be. It's not all that it could be. But I do love you. And this time, Jesus tells Peter, okay, then tend my sheep. The word pastor, by the way, it's simply the Greek word for shepherd. Did you know that? The word pastor is simply the Greek word for shepherd. And these verses, they tell us that the role of a pastor in the church is on the one hand to feed the people with the spiritual food of God's word, but on the other hand, it's also to tend the people by caring for their needs, by protecting them from harm. And then finally, in verse 17, after all of this, Jesus asked Peter for a third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? 
But this time there's something different. You remember the first two times Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me with agape love? And Peter replied, Lord, I love you with phileo love. But this time it's different. This time Jesus says, okay, Peter, do you really love me? with phileo love. Jesus uses the word now that Peter used. He drops down a level. He says, okay, Peter, but do you really love me with phileo love? And this cut Peter to the heart, not only because it was the third time, but because Peter understood what Jesus was getting at, what Jesus was doing. Here's what Jesus was doing. Jesus was matching Peter's threefold denial of him with a threefold restoration, a threefold denial and now a threefold restoration. For each of the three times that Peter had denied Jesus, now Jesus was giving him a chance to declare his love for him. Do you see what Jesus wanted from Peter more than anything else? He wanted his love. He wanted his love. And friends, that's what God wants from you more than anything else. He wants your love. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want even your obedience, most of all. Most of all, what he wants first and foremost is your love. And what does that mean? What does that even mean to, to love Jesus? Does it mean to have, you know, fuzzy feelings for him? No. You know, Peter's love for Jesus didn't mean that they, they wrote each other little notes and gazed into each other's eyes longingly and stayed up all night talking on the phone, right? No. Peter's love for Jesus was devotion to him that was willing to sacrifice his life for him. That's what love is. Devotion that is willing to give your life. But listen, there also is an emotional element to this love as well. Imagine if, if you have kids. Imagine if one day one of your kids came to you when they are little and said to you, you know, Daddy or Mommy, I will obey you perfectly for the rest of my life. And you say, oh my gosh, did I die and go to heaven? I'm going to have a heart attack right now. This is the best news I've ever heard. But then they finish the sentence. And they said, I'm going to obey you perfectly for the rest of my life, but I will never love you. I will never love you. What parent would take that deal? Not a single one. No parent would ever do that. Every parent would say, no, that would be terrible. No, you know what I want first and foremost from you? I want love. I want a relationship. Your obedience to me, it, it should be an overflow of your love, not a substitute for your love. But listen, when you get those things in the right order, do you know that? When you give God your love, that place of devotion, when you give your life over to him, everything else falls into place, doesn't it? Love is the most powerful motivator in the world. It causes people to do crazy things. If you love someone, your time, your money, your, your attention automatically flows to that which you love. And the way to grow in love for God, the Bible tells us, is by looking deeply and considering the immensity of his love for you. That's what it says. We love because he first loved us. And then we read the last verse in this section, verse 18 and 19. Uh, Peter, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you did not want to go. And this he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. Roughly 30 years after this, Peter was arrested in the city of Rome. He was bound by his captors. He was led away, and his hands were stretched out, and he was nailed to a cross, and he died in complete faithfulness to Jesus, his Savior. 
According to accounts of Christians at that time, Peter insisted that the Romans crucify him upside down because he felt that he was unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So on the one hand, understand Jesus is telling Peter, Peter, you're going to die a horrific death because of your identification with me. But on the other hand, this would have been incredibly hopeful, incredibly, a wave of peace would have washed over Peter when he heard these words. You know why? Because what is Jesus telling him? He's telling him, Peter, there's going to come another moment, another crucial moment, another critical moment in which you will be tempted to deny me in order to save yourself once again. But this time, you're not going to fail. This time, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter, you will have the courage and the strength to serve me faithfully all the way to the end. And Peter must have been so glad. And then it says in verse 19, after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Three years before this, Jesus spoke to Peter for the first time on the shores of this same sea, perhaps even on the same beach. And he said to him, you, Simon, son of John, follow me. And Peter said, I'm in. And now here they are once again in that same spot three years later after everything that has happened. And Jesus is extending this invitation to Peter once again. Peter, are you still in? Peter, now that you know how this story is going to end, are you still in? I'm calling you once again today to follow me. You see, not only had Jesus died and risen to new life, but understand, Peter had also died. That, that arrogant Peter who we saw before, he died to the person that he was, the person who trusted in himself. That Peter has died, and Jesus has now raised him up to new life, into a new identity, a new Peter. This is what it means to be risen to new life, to put to death the old life, and to be born again to a new life in Christ. Every one of you here today, Jesus would look you in the eye and he would, he would say these same words to you that he said to Peter that day. Follow me. Follow me. Maybe some of you are here and somebody else brought you and you've never really followed him. You've never taken that step and responded to that call of Jesus to follow him for yourself. Today is the day to begin that journey. Others of you, today is the day when, like Peter you need to hear those words again, and you need to respond again to the call of Jesus as he looks you in the eye and says to you, follow me. Commit yourself anew to following me. What we see here with Peter is that sin leads to separation in our relationship with God and in our relationships with others. And in order for broken relationships to be restored, somebody has to die. Maybe God is calling you to die to yourself, to die to your pride in regard to some relationship in your life, to forgive someone who has sinned against you, to seek reconciliation even though you feel that you are the offended party. Because of the message of the gospel, it's that Jesus died so that you can have new life. He rose from the grave proving that he defeated sin and death for you. And now in him, you can become a new creation and live by the power of the resurrection. Friends, sin leads to separation, but in order for or sin leads to separation, but in order for restoration to take place, there must be death that leads to new life. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. 
If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.